So excited for this week. We uh, finally got our new soundboard installed. Week by week, little things happen that maybe you might not notice them, but it's a big deal for us getting set up. And hopefully soon we even have a new pulpit coming. Just every week something, something more stable to grab onto so I don't keep pushing this down. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. God, I thank you for all of these beautiful faces who shine with your glory because you have forgiven them in Christ. You indwell them by your spirit and they know you because you have made yourself known to them. And I see it and I rejoice in it and it encourages me and builds me up and makes me so much more pleased and confident to bring the word because I know that when your spirit helps me proclaim your truth, your spirit will also help them to receive it and to delight in it and to trust you even more. So would you do that in all of us this morning through your word? Make us alive with joy and love and peace with God. Because of Christ, amen. The house that my family lives in has been in our family, Molly's family, for over a hundred years. Our kids are actually the sixth generation to live in our house. The house has a ton of history. Mourning and celebration occurred there. Tears and blood and sweat poured out on that farm. And new lives birthed and old lives ended right within the four walls of our home. What ties us to that history isn't so much the building itself, but the men of the third and fourth generations to live in our house live right next door and across the street. So very often we get to hear their stories and they show us old pictures, recreating for us what life was like on the farm. In many ways, though it's the exact same house, it was a completely different world back then. And hearing their stories makes me appreciate how good we have it today. So often, when we have it going so well in our lives, we forget how difficult life was for previous generations upon whom our society is built. So in our home, many lives ended much sooner than we anticipate in our lives. The foods they ate were pretty plain and routine. Their entire farm fields plowed and harvested with a team of horses. Whenever there was a snowstorm, they would be locked in the house for days on end. You would fear for your life to go outside because you might get lost in a blizzard and freeze just 100 feet from your door. And kids on Christmas were grateful that the one gift they received that Christmas was a blanket to put on their bed so they wouldn't shiver all night long. We don't realize how good we have it today. Every single week, we get to eat foods from around the world. Large machines now do the farm work in one day, what took them the entire season. When a snowstorm comes, we just wait an hour until the plow drives by and we go about our day like nothing happened. And on Christmas, we get more junk than we really know what to do with. So many kids get so many presents today and then they show how ungrateful they are. They want more gifts. They want a better version of what they got. 
Nothing satisfies their insatiable appetites for more. They don't realize how good they have it. And yet today I want to explore in this message how we are just like our children when it comes to the amazing gifts that God has given us in Christ. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus who unfolds for us a world of blessings. And yet throughout the week, we often act like it's really not that great of a gift. We want more, or maybe we thought this gift of Jesus would give us a little bit different life. And we show throughout the year with our attitudes and our behaviors, with how we prioritize things in our life, that it's not that great of a gift at all. So what gift am I thinking of today that we so often take for granted? What is the gift that we are surrounded in, in this room, that we don't realize how great we have it? The gift I'm thinking of is a new covenant with God. And when we take a look at life under the old covenant, and the people of Israel, like listening to our grandparents and great-grandparents tell us about life on the farm, we can see how good we really have it. So our text for today is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. In this text, Jeremiah reveals to us this great gift of a new covenant that was promised to all those believers in the Old Testament. They thought would never come, and yet now we have it. We live in it. We swim in it. We breathe new covenant air, and we don't realize how spectacular we have it. So Jeremiah tells us about this new covenant in chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Follow along with me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't think I'm assuming too much when I say, suggest that most Christians, at least in our culture, don't have a really good understanding of what a covenant is. We hear the word covenant when we read the Bible or when we take communion and say, this is the new covenant in my blood, and we move on like, well, it's just part of the story, but it must not be that big of a deal. We can understand the story without really knowing how to define the word, so it must not be too important. But really, the entire Bible is a covenantal book. The whole story is built on a structure of covenants, the names Old Testament and New Testament mean the Old Covenant documents right here written down, the stipulations of the New Covenant written down for you. Unfortunately, I can't 
cover an entire covenantal theology for you in one sermon. It might bore many of you, really. But I do want to give you just enough understanding of covenants to know how incredible it is that we live in a new covenant. My goal this morning is to simply compare the old covenant and the new covenant and show you how wonderful of a gift, how much better it is to live with a new covenant given to us by Jesus. So the main idea of this message is simply that God has freely given us this gift of a new covenant in order to fully restore a joyful and peaceful relationship with himself. We'll look at this text from Jeremiah in two parts. The first two verses, 31 and 32, will explore the old covenant, where the old covenant came from, and how it failed to keep relationship with God. And then in verses 33 and 34, take a look at the benefits of the new covenant, how wonderful it is, and how jealous those old covenant saints would be of us. So first the old covenant and then the new covenant. So let's return to the text in Jeremiah and see how faithful Israel was to the old covenant. In verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah says that Israel broke this old covenant. But how did they even get that covenant that they broke? What were they supposed to do? So we should back up a little bit and see where that old covenant came from. But even might help to back up even further and ask, what in the world is a covenant? Well, a covenant is at its most basic level, an agreement between two people, two parties that describes how they should relate to one another. And there's lots of covenants in the Bible. So God would make covenants with people and or some individuals would make covenants with one another. Marriage is a covenant. We talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. A commitment to certain relational behaviors, how we're going to interact for the good of one another. God made covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David. But when we talk about the old covenant, what we're really talking about is the covenant God made, the agreement God made with Israel through Moses, the mediator, the one who stood between them on the Mount on Mount Sinai and reaffirmed that before they entered the promised land, heading into the promised land or across the Jordan River. So we see the Ten Commandments and that list of, of rules about what foods you can eat and what clothes you can wear and who you're allowed to relate with and how you're supposed to worship and sacrifice and when you're supposed to have festivals, all of that are the stipulations, the requirements of the old covenant, the behavior requirements for the people of Israel in order to stay in a safe relationship with God. But they didn't just make this idea up. If we study ancient Near Eastern history, we find that 4,000 years ago, kings all the time would make covenants with each other. If a less powerful king felt threatened by a greater king, greater kingdom that was near them, they would go to the king of that great kingdom and say, hey, let's make a treaty. Let's have an agreement where um, we give you our allegiance and in turn you give us peace and protection from all these other nations. And then in return, that greater king would offer, say, yes, 
I will do that, but here's what you must do. Here's a list of requirements that you must follow to obey us and a list of blessings and curses. If you do it, these are the things you get. If you don't, these are the curses you get. So when we study the Bible, especially the first five books that we call the law, we find that it bears many of the exact same characteristics of these ancient Near Eastern treaties. We find that Israel, a lesser covenant, is entering into, or a lesser kingdom, is entering into an agreement, a covenant with God, a greater king. They're desperate for someone to protect them from all their enemies. And God says, yes, I'll protect you, but you need to keep these rules. And if you disobey, in Deuteronomy 28, we find a list of blessings and curses. Blessings of prosperous life in the land. Protection from all your enemies. But if you disobey me, you are going to suffer in the land, and then eventually I will take you out of that land. Israel was desperate for God's protection. They were just taken out of Egypt. They escaped slavery in Egypt. And they're just this ragtag bunch of people going, okay, there's a couple million of us. Apparently we're a nation, but we have no organization, no standing army. We are in trouble. We need a greater king to protect us. And God says, I will do it. So in Exodus 19, verse 8, God finishes giving them the requirements of the law. And the Israelites see that and they're excited for this king to protect them. And they declare all in one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then as soon as they finished speaking those words, they were doomed to receive the curses. And so Jeremiah picks up the life of Israel nearly 850 years later. All that the Lord has spoken, they failed to do. 850 years of disobedience. 850 years of turning their backs on God, their king. The book of Jeremiah is not a very pleasant book to read looking through that lens. It's simply a collection of judgments upon Israel for their unfaithfulness and upon all the nations surrounding them for their wickedness, showing like a prosecutor this mountain of evidence with Israel on trial saying they are just as wicked as their neighbors. And the first half of the book of Jeremiah is God's reasoning for bringing all of the covenant curses that they have earned. You go to Deuteronomy 28 and read those curses and why they get them, and you can see in Jeremiah exactly what they are getting. But Jeremiah first begins in chapter 3, saying, showing God's heart for Israel. You were my wife, my bride. I wanted to take care of you and bless you. And Jeremiah says in chapter 3 that Israel's like an unfaithful wife, repeatedly committing adultery and breaking the covenant. And according to this covenant, God has the right to divorce her. And then he follows with 25 chapters describing her adulterous affairs, worshiping other gods, not caring for the vulnerable people among them, but hoarding their wealth, killing their children in child sacrifices, committing all kinds of lewd sins. They deserve every curse of the punishment, every curse of the covenant, because they were unfaithful. It all just looks so hopeless. The Assyrians had already come down from the north and wiped out the northern kingdoms of Israel. 
And now the Babylonians have arrived and begun the same work of taking away a significant portion of the southern tribes. They're done for. God kept His word. You disobey, I'm taking you out. And they just couldn't do it. Foolishly, they proclaimed, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't have the ability, they didn't have the heart to do it. Ever since Adam and Eve took that bite of the fruit, nobody has been able to obey God and to bring Him pleasure. But God knew that this would happen. Back in Deuteronomy, and after God gives the list of blessings and curses, and He goes to chapter 29 and says, you're going to disobey. I look forward in time and see that you're going to walk away repeatedly. You're going to fail to keep my covenant. And the reason why, he says in chapter 29, verse 4, because the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. They didn't have the internal capacity to keep the law. But then in chapter 30, he promises. He keeps going and says, yes, you're going to fall away, but I will bring you back. And when I put you in the land, look for a time when I am going to circumcise your hearts so you will be able to obey. This is the first hint of the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of. There's going to be a day when there will be a completely new way of relating to God. Moses anticipated it. Ezekiel wrote about it in Ezekiel 36 where he said that his people are going to get a new heart, a heart of flesh. And he's going to put God's Spirit right into his people so that they will be able to obey and avoid all of these covenant curses. They'll never again be punished when that new covenant is made. So Jeremiah has all of these judgments pronounced for 29 chapters upon Israel. And then in chapter 29, there's a little shift. You feel the despair. And then he gets to American evangelicalism's favorite verse in chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. This has nothing to do with living the American dream and everything to do with God promising to restore His people with a new covenant. He's going to make you able to obey Him and please Him. So let's look back at Jeremiah 31 then and move on in his story to see how much better the new covenant is. In verses 33 and 34, God says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Here's the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah gives us the greatest Christmas gift beautifully wrapped with a shiny bow on it saying, this is the solution to all your problems, to all your fear and your shame and your guilt and your hopelessness. So let's unwrap this beautiful present and look at what's inside. Jeremiah shows us three parts that make this 
gift of a new covenant way better than the old one. First, he says the law will be internalized. Second, he says we'll be in a relationship with God. And third, it'll be founded on forgiveness of sins. That last one is the ground for the other two. It's foundational. You can see that that last sentence begins with the word for, meaning because. Because of this, you will have these other benefits. So let's start there. Israel has disobeyed repeatedly. All of us have disobeyed God repeatedly. We deserve the punishments, the curses of the law. But God bringing a new covenant can't just say, okay, let's just start over. I'll put you on a new path and we'll forget about all that past. And if you obey me from here on out, we'll be all right. He needs to do something about that sinful past. And the new covenant provides that forgiveness, the ground for giving you all the other things. That's why Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He establishes a new covenant in his own sacrifice, paying for all of our sins. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave guarantees that all who have faith in him will have their entire record of disobedience from the beginning of their life to the end wiped completely clean. No more sacrificing goats and bulls and doves in order to cover your sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God sees everyone who is in this covenant as though they never once sinned in their entire lives. And then Jeremiah says in the next chapter that this will be an everlasting covenant. God will never divorce his people again. He doesn't have a a stipulation in there, a, a loophole in there anymore where he's allowed to divorce his people. No matter what sins you commit, if you're in the new covenant, he will always bring you back to himself and remember your sins no more. He will never hold your sins against you saying, hey, remember when you did this? You owe me. It's gone. He's let it go because of Christ. But he can't just leave us forgiven. He doesn't just forgive you and leave you in a neutral state. There's no fence sitting. There's no neutral ground where you're not pursuing God, but you're also not pursuing sin. You either are pursuing God or you're in sin. And so the new covenant picks us up off of that other path and sets us on the right path. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So before the law was written on stone tablets, Paul says. It was external. We were unable to keep it. And now he puts it inside of us and gives us the ability to keep it. Internally, it shapes our desires as we live. Ezekiel adds to this then that he puts his spirit in us to help shape our desires. 3,000 years ago, Israel proclaimed, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. But they couldn't do it. They didn't have the ability. And now, with this gift of the new covenant, we have the ability to please God with our actions. By His grace, by the Spirit in us, we can actually keep the covenant and no longer fear the curses. Finally, we see the intended results of this new covenant. We have forgiven sins. Now we have the ability to walk 
in obedience to the law. And the whole point of it all is that we all will know God. Not just know He exists, not just know things about Him, but know Him personally, intimately. He will be our God and we will be His people. The covenant no longer defines a relationship between this big threatening king who stands over us waiting for us to fail so he can come and wipe us out. No longer does it have this feeling of a judge who stands in condemnation over guilty people. The new covenant restores what was originally intended for humanity, an intimate relationship with God. We are his children. He is our loving father. This isn't a statement about evangelism. This is what really confused me when I used to read this. He's saying that we don't need to go out and do evangelism. No, the point is that everyone who's already in the covenant already knows God. My kids who are in my family don't walk around the house telling each other, oh, you should meet my dad. He's great. You should really get to know dad. He really is fun to play Legos with. Of course, they all know me because I'm the one that brought them into the family. And I choose to reveal myself to them and take care of them. And so everyone who is in the new covenant is there because God the Father has sent his son to adopt us into his family and make us known to him. This text is actually one big reason why we are Baptists in our view of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You may think, what in the world is he talking about? This text says nothing about baptism. Well, in the Old Covenant, there was always a mixture of faithful, believing Jewish people and non-believing Jewish people. In fact, most people in the Old Covenant were not faithful. That's why they're being exiled, right? We refer to the remnant, those faithful few who kept the thread, kept the line going. But all of them were still in the covenant. They all got to receive the signs of the covenant because the old covenant was made up of people simply who were born into the family. If you were a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel, you were in the covenant people. But the new covenant isn't made of people or defined by blood relationships, ancestral blood relationships, but defined by our relationship with the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant isn't a mixture of faithful and unfaithful people. They all know him from the least to the greatest. All who are in the covenant are forgiven. They all have the spirit indwelling them. They all know God. So we don't baptize babies born into Christian homes like Jews circumcised babies born into Jewish homes. We baptize those who have been born again into the new covenant family. And we know who they are because they display forgiven sins and knowledge of God and spirit-led obedience to the law. And we don't share the Lord's Supper simply with anyone who walks into the room like the Jews shared the Passover with anyone they could get into their homes where they were going to spread the lamb's blood on the door. We share the Lord's Supper as a family, rejoicing in all the families of God who are adopted children covered not by a lamb, but by Jesus, the Lamb of God, who show themselves to be faithful, spirit-filled, and known by God. We live 
in a much better covenant than they had. The old covenant was impossible to keep and just always led to curses and more suffering. Those faithful Jews, the remnant, longed for the day. They looked forward to today, to us gathering here, when forgiveness would be permanent, when obedience would be possible, when the Spirit would dwell within them and they could finally be surrounded by faithful brothers and sisters. And now we are living in that time. Look around you and see how good you have it. You are surrounded in this room by faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Daily, I get to hear from you how your prayers are answered, how you are seeing amazing, powerful works of God by the Spirit alive in you. If we could transport one of those Old Testament saints here today, they would weep. They would just start crying, seeing how amazing it is that you can walk in faithfulness. You can walk in a life pleasing to God because you are surrounded by Spirit-filled believers helping you walk. The Spirit alive in you, like He was only for a few, select few people in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, if they wanted to know what God had to say, if they wanted to know what God wanted for them, they had to wait for a prophet to come or go somewhere and find a prophet. And today, you probably have multiple copies of God's Word in your home. You can come here every single week and hear the Word of God proclaimed from this music stand. Soon to be pulpit. We have been blessed with an incredible gift in Christ in the new covenant. So how do we respond when we are offered such an amazing gift? Well, don't be like the Pharisees. They had it right in front of them. It was offered to them. Said, here's your new covenant, which your people longed for. And they said, hmm, no thanks. Yes, we know that the reason we were exiled from the land was because we failed to keep the law. But hey, good news, we're back in the land now. So we're just going to add a few extra laws onto this thing to keep us from disobeying those laws. And then we'll be good. We're all right. In their foolishness, they tried to cover their existing guilt and shame by just covering it up with more law-keeping. But that will do us no good. The law, trying to keep the law, comparing yourself to the law, will only lead to more condemnation and guilt and shame. The right response is to receive this marvelous gift. Rest in it and enjoy it. Don't put it on a shelf to get dusty. Don't ignore its forgiveness and beat yourself up over your guilt and shame. Don't neglect to be surrounded weekly by brothers and sisters proving to you that you are in this new covenant. God has made a way for us all to receive all the blessings and no curses of the covenant without doing any of the work to earn those blessings. Jesus did the work for us. In his life, he kept the law perfectly and earned every blessing, and then he shares them with all who trust in him with the greatest reward of that new covenant being an intimate relationship with the Father. All who are in Christ are in the new covenant, and all who are in the new covenant know him personally. From the least to the greatest, the oldest to the youngest, the smartest to the most ignorant, 
we all know Him because He has forgiven us and put His Spirit and law within us so we can please Him with our lives. So this Christmas, as you sing your Christmas carols and go visit your families and look upon the nativity scenes and eat delicious Christmas ham, know that the best gift you have received in Christ is a relationship with God filled with peace and love and joy and hope. Receive that gift and go into the new year celebrating it with your brothers and sisters in weekly worship. Enjoy the gift by engaging in your life with joy, letting go of your guilt and shame. And share the gift by telling all your friends and family and neighbors that you can please God because of Jesus. Rejoice this Christmas in the gift of the new covenant. Let's pray. God, what an honor it is to be surrounded by these people. I can see the Spirit alive in them, and that assures me that I am alive in Christ. We live in an age of a new covenant with a far better mediator, as the writer of Hebrews says, with far better promises, with far more efficacy. Our sins are all wiped clean forever. We are promised eternal life, never being forsaken by you. Nothing can take us out of your hands. We receive far more lasting promises, God. This is an everlasting covenant. We are always pleasing to you in Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the blood of Jesus covering us so we can know you. Help us to feel that today in this Christmas season. Help us to know you as a little child knows his father. Amen.